Hello, you are plugging into the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have a fantastic day. We'll see you at church. So the title of my message today is We Don't Hide Light. And I want to share my thoughts on what it takes to be a community that Jesus describes as light. Light that people can see, light that is impact, and light that is influence. Light that is transformative. The kind that Jesus intended for all Christians and for His communities to be. You see, that is my intention for the evolution. That is why we set out to build this place. That is why we're so relentless after so many years. That is why there are 600, 700 Christian communities in Singapore and we chose to build another one. Not out of arrogance, not because anyone, myself or your leaders wants to be on top. In fact, most of us are pretty reluctant leaders. But God called and we answered And he put a dream in our heart and we're still dreaming of something different, of something unconventional, of something true to Jesus, of something with integrity, of something not mainstream. (laughs) But sometimes I find, especially this one of five years, you know, that dream can get very, very difficult. You ever feel that way about your own dream right now in life? It can be disappointing. It can be rough. It can feel like a never-ending battle of desperation. Sometimes our dreams seem more trouble than it's worth. But that's how all good and great things are. They are more trouble than it feels like it's worth in the moment, right? But one thing I have realized is that when it comes to a true dream, despite all the pain, and mind you, let me just say it hasn't been all pain, okay? But despite the pain that we go through, we can't seem to stop. And that is because when it comes to the evolution, the idea of it, the dream of the future of it, we have a conviction about Jesus, not a preference. We have a conviction about who we are and what God has called us to be. And that desire, that ever-changing future is so captivating It is too arresting that we can't easily give it up. And I think what I'm saying will actually resonate with many of you here, especially those of you who have been here for many years, staying through thick and thin and everything in between. But it also feels this season, let me say this, that God has been the past few years and this year calling us higher. Right? Again, I think you know it, many of you, especially the leaders in the call, you know it deep in your hearts. Maybe some of the newer peeps, even as you've come to join our church this year, you know, you came here not just because your needs are met, but something in your spirit says God is doing something here. Something different. Something distinct. Something unconventional. You know, and there are days where this church is really exciting, And there are days where it's downright, (laughs) right? There are days where we know exactly what we want to build. And then there are days where it's like, oh my God, it's the great unknown. And there are days where what our future means feels scary. Where we go ask, who are we to dare to break the mold? To dare to challenge tradition? 
to dare to trespass religion, to dare to dream against the boundaries that we've known all our lives, the boundaries of what Christianity and community are supposed to look like. And there are days when we try and we fail. There are days where we try and it works. There are days we try and it doesn't work. And there have been days we try and we lose people. And there have been days where it feels like this slow uphill climb, this slog to even imagine something that doesn't exist yet. But today I want to encourage you the way God has been encouraging me during this fast. Especially those of you who have put so much faith into this space. Some of you for many years now, you have sacrificed. You know, those of you here, even if you're new, who want to run with this, but you don't know how you should or whether you can because you're so new, you know, you can't imagine, like, how can I be a part of pioneering something when I'm such a new Christian? How can I create a different future when I don't even know what Christianity is supposed to look like to begin with? But listen, today I want to encourage you that the Bible says you are a light. It doesn't say you will be a light. It says you are. It doesn't say you will be a city on a hill if you work hard enough and you pull the bricks up the hill and build and construct long enough. Jesus says you are. Will you turn to your neighbor and say you are? Will you turn to your neighbor and say I am? So my first thought is this that I want to share with you today. Number one, perfection isn't required. You know, all my life when I thought about the Last Supper, the moment when Jesus broke bread and shared wine with the disciples, the image in my head was always an enclosed dark room, dimly lit, private and hidden away from prying eyes. And I suspect that's probably your mental image as well if you've been a Christian for a while. I mean, it's the image in every Jesus film, in nearly every painting, right? This enclosed dark room. But do you know the Last Supper, or maybe we should call it, I think a better name sometimes is the First Communion, okay? Because sometimes I think last, right, makes the focus like, oh, Jesus is about to die. But First Communion feels like it's the beginning of a church. So do you know that like Pentecost, and can I have the painting back up, okay? Do you know that like Pentecost, the First Communion actually took place in an upper room? That Matthew, you know, Matthew doesn't mention it in his passage, but Mark and Luke take note of this that it was a large, they both describe, upper room in the city. So it wasn't some outskirt where no one could see them. And the view probably looked a lot more like this. The one we see in this painting than an enclosed dark private space that we've always had in our minds. The room was open, elevated, probably at least a second or third story. There is a city around them and people's homes just outside the space where they are gathered. If people were walking past, they could see what was happening. If people were walking by, they probably would have witnessed them having communion even if they didn't know exactly the significance of what was happening. Jesus, think about this, the great teacher was there with his disciples. I'm sure there were some capos. 
trying to see what was happening in that upper room. You see, Christians, sometimes we, we also, listen, get lost in what, a, besides just the dark moment we think that it is, we get lost in what a great moment this is. The moment that created one of our most important rituals besides baptism. And we just think, oh man, it's this glorious, amazing thing, it's this epic thing, this huge thing. But I want to point out something that we often also overlook about this moment. And that is who Jesus' disciples actually were in the moment when Jesus invited them to be at his table. So Winnie pointed this out to me the other night because she did her visio divina on this. And she said, all the disciples at the table were at different stages in their relationship with God. Some at the table were fully engaged with Jesus leaning in. Two were off to the side having their own private conversation, doing their own thing. Some of them maybe were stoning, spacing out. They were all in different spaces in their life. And in fact, you know this, Jesus' disciples were made out of so many different ages. Some of them were 30, 40 years old, and then there was John who was only 15. So some were leaning in. Some were away, some were near, some were at a distance. And we forget also that one of them was Judas. The one who would betray the Christ. So in this moment when Jesus gathered people to be at the communion table, they were not yet the heroes of faith we have come to know them as today. And yet, none of them could diminish Jesus' light. You know, one of the things I've often struggled with when it comes to pioneering a church is this idea that it needs to be perfect before it can work. I need to be perfect. We need to be perfect before we can be light. But that is simply not true. Light is light because God is in our midst. Light is light because we are together united towards a dream. Not because of our perfection, not because we're able, not because we're special, but because God is with us. And for that matter, what on earth is Christian perfection anyway? Somebody's opinion on the right way to do church that has become mainstream and trendy. You know, one thing I will say this about the evolution, we have never claimed to know the right way of building God's church. But what we do desire deeply, desperately, is to keep building him a community that is his dream church. A community that is truly zealous for him. Christians that are deeply trying to be Jesus' love and example and goodness in the world around us. God's light that is in us and with us is stronger than our imperfection. His power, and this is why I love this verse from Paul where he says, His power is made perfect even in our weakness. So listen, to be light, perfection isn't required. Only genuine intention and sincere action. My second thought is this, number two, light is sharing in both the ordinary and the extraordinary of life. You know, here's the truth of the matter, church is not tidy. Building true community and relationship is messy and time-consuming. You know, I think sometimes the problem with our generation is that we're so used to instant everything. 
Our generation is so used to relationship through taps and swipes. Right? Technology has allowed us to make our relationships efficient, tidy, within our control. We feel like it, we log on. We don't feel like it, we log off. We can like, unfollow, follow, unfriend, DM, block at the tap of a button. But you know the problem with that? Technology has also made our interactions superficial. And each of us profoundly independent of one another and sometimes alone. So here's the interesting thing, right? Studies show none of this connection through social media can replace our connection in person. So don't get me wrong, I'm excited to build online church. I think it's a medium, a third party, a third space that can invite people to God in a non-threatening way, an exciting way for us to express our creativity and our influence, but it is not a replacement for in-person connection with people. In fact, it's a terribly addictive, poor imitation. And what's worse, you know what? I've been reading books and they tell me that our online patterns of relating to one another are becoming handicaps in our real life connecting with each other. So people start to bring the way they text, short form, emoji, into the way they talk in person. People start to bring the way they log off on people into ghosting in real life. <laughs> and have you noticed that during this pandemic, one and a half years, it's about to become endemic, that deeper conversation with your friend is actually a muscle? Yeah. That if you haven't been putting in the effort to keep that muscle conditioned while you've been stuck at home, that it's been harder to talk deep and long, even with your best friends. You see, there is no light, you got to understand this, without deeper relationship and communion, whether it's with God or with people. And what is communion exactly? It is sharing time and space together. Living out both the ordinary and extraordinary moments of your lives together with someone else. So in my breakout group this week, Tiawu was also sharing his reflections on this picture, okay? And, and one of the things he liked about this artwork was that he said communion is about sharing both the ordinary and extraordinary. So think about it, right? The bread and the wine, right? You know, these symbols, you know, bread is something ordinary. Back then, it was a common thing in Jesus' time that rich or poor could eat as a staple in Israel. Just maybe the rich could afford better bread. <laughs> but even today, it's kind of like that, right? It's something all of us can afford. With $2, you can get a loaf of gardenia at your local store. Or you can pop by some Atta shop and buy sourdough bread for 10 bucks. <laughs> Correct? So, it is something ordinary that everybody has access to. Now, wine back then and today is the same was reserved for special occasions. These are the symbols of our communion with Jesus. The ritual that demonstrates our union with God and our union with God's family is both ordinary and extraordinary. You know, but also think of 
the time, the actual incident and event where the disciples celebrated their communion. Now we, we make it all lofty and we do it only in church at a special moment with all these recitals and confessions and declarations, right? But this is when the first communion took place. They were having dinner together. The first communion was not just a ritual done and gone in a minute. It took place over the length of time of a meal. There was talking, laughing, moments of silence, sometimes out of comfort, sometimes awkward. There were people stoning out, having private conversations. Some were waiting in anticipation, what and when was Jesus going to say something? There was so much ordinary and then a moment of extraordinary. Where Jesus lifted up the bread and said, this is my body, eat of it. This is the cup of the blood of my covenant with you. Drink. You know, and of course, he makes a big declaration, I'm about to die. And the next time we enjoy this, I will have risen from the dead and ushered in a new day on the earth. You know, one of the sayings in our leadership team is, if you want to be team with us, you've got to be willing to waste time with us. Because communion is coming together for both an extraordinary shared purpose, this idea of building a crazily different Christian community, but it's also coming together, so much of it is for the ordinary moments of joy and sorrow and mid-range, mediocre time in between those ups and downs. And I believe communion, this ordinary and extraordinary is where light lives. So, just to throw in a little bit of interdisciplinary stuff, which you know I love. So, in psychology, do you know that happiness can be broken down into two major types? And the first type is called hedonic happiness, which was first coined by a Greek philosopher in the 4th century, whereby he said the way to a good life was to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So studies today define this as hedonic happiness as the kind of happiness that comes from having fun, pleasure that comes from enjoyable experiences, and this may be from having money, buying things, you know, travel, a good meal, socializing. This sort of happiness is important to our well-being. In fact, hedonic behavior, they found, increases positive emotions, increases your feeling of satisfaction about life in the moment, and it helps to regulate your emotions in your brain. So it's good. However, what researchers also found is that living only for hedonic happiness can actually lead to more unhappiness and even cause people to engage in overly risky or self-sabotaging behavior. And what they found recently is this is happening more and more nowadays, especially with millennials, especially with Gen Z, because the media and our online culture upholds hedonic behavior as our best lives. Right? Travel photo. <laughs> hashtag my best life. Food shot. Hashtag my best life. Coffee. Hashtag my best life especially if there's a Pikachu in the coffee. Okay? Now we need it, but it is not everything. The second kind of happiness that psychology tells us about is eudaimonic happiness. 
And this was first proposed by Aristotle, one of my favorite philosophers, in the 4th century as well. Aristotle believed that to achieve happiness, one should pursue a life well lived, a life in alignment with one's virtues. And by virtues, he meant our values, but also what we were gifted to do. And so Aristotle says, he theorizes, the more we live into our potential and our values, the better our lives become. So here's what researchers today have found. Eudaimonic happiness leads to more experiences, the kind of joy that is elevated. And longer prolonged satisfaction because of your experience of meaning and conviction and purpose in life. Okay? But here's the rub about eudaimonic happiness. And that is, when we are pursuing meaning and conviction and purpose in life, it is actually impossible for all your feelings in life to be positive. Right? Think about it, right? All the big goals and all the big experiences in your life, for example, getting a degree that you really wanted, pursuing a dream in your career, you know, getting through relationships, marriage, raising children, I don't know, digging deep right now, we're into self-awareness right in our church, going to therapy, living with social justice and trying to figure out how to be more aware and a better person. It's impossible for all of it to be positive. But if I were to ask you if it was worth it in hindsight or even right now, your answer would be yes. Because even in our eudaimonic journeys, you will have experienced hedonic moments. Both pervade your most important experiences and pursuits in life. Human beings need both in order to be happy, purpose and pleasure. But social media has made us so efficient and transactional and instant and so adverse to negative feelings that nowadays when it comes to meeting together and having relationships, we only want to meet if there's a good enough reason, a purpose for us being here, or a pleasure that we can get out of it. And so if we don't feel fun all the time, we fall out of love. If we don't feel purpose, we feel it's a waste of time to waste time together. But that's not how relationships work. That's not how relationships build or go strong, whether it is with God or with each other. So maybe what made the early church such a light was that they reflected both. There was purpose in their coming together, but there was also shared pleasure both pain and joy in coming together. So I want to say to you guys, you know, being a Christian, you know, don't just gather with us only when it's fun. Don't only gather when you feel like there is purpose. Because the gathering itself, you know, light needs to be both in order to be light. Light is not just utilitarian or pragmatic. Light is culture. Light is a feeling. It's an atmosphere that's created when people come together with both ordinary and extraordinary, with both purpose and pleasure. Are you here with me? So let's do something unusual together today, all right? And that's we're going to take Holy Communion right now. We're not going to make any decorations. 
We're not going to do anything in particular. Maybe you can turn to your neighbor and say cheers. Okay, so come, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for inviting us to your table. We thank you that you accept both the ordinary and imperfect parts of us as people and as a community. We ask you to help us build deeper communion with you and with each other. Help us to participate in both the ordinary and extraordinary when it comes to building your kingdom. We bless you and we thank you for your blood and we thank you for your body. That because of it, by grace, we are not going to be light. We are already light with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Plastic romance. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay, third thought for you. Third thought, okay? My third thought is this. With God, it only takes 11. Eleven imperfect people. 11 people of different ages, 11 people at different stages, 11 ordinary, sometimes messy, sometimes bullheaded, sometimes stubborn, sometimes weak, sometimes lacking motivation. Okay? So again, let me confess a personal struggle with you, right? And that is, I, I tend to think that it takes a lot of people to make an impact in the world. Now, of course, I don't preach that, but... I think deep down, sometimes we believe that. Now, of course, there's a truth to numbers. A bigger community potentially means, potentially means bigger mass, bigger visibility, bigger influence, if it is used well. But then again, I also know a lot of spaces that are big and they don't use their size well. When we grow big, I want us to use our size well. But here's the thing, right? As much as I dream of a big future, nothing big ever began big. It began small. Nothing great ever started out great. It was average for a very long time before it became great. So the Church of Jesus Christ today, listen to me, the Universal Church of Jesus Christ is massive. In many ways for the better, but as we are seeing nowadays, in many ways for the worse as well. But the fact of the matter is, the good stuff can be really, really, really great. And how did the good stuff start? It started 2,000 years ago with 11 people and God. 
It started with 11 and one who left. Well, not just one, because if you read the life of Jesus, remember, this is actually not the first mention of communion. It's the first celebration, but not the first mention. In John 6, Jesus has talked about communion with his followers. And at that time, if I look at the timeline, quite possibly, you know, that was the time where he had 72 disciples who were with him. But after he talked about communion, eat my body and drink my blood, the Bible says most of them, I assume 60 because left 12, right? Found the teaching so hard, they abandoned him. And yet, with God, 11 still managed to repopulate the church. It started with 11 imperfect men, and this was not counting the women. Eventually, the women got added. But you see, with God, the church began to change. And before you knew it, it started with 11 imperfect men. Then there were women apostles. There were Gentiles added. There were many races that came together. There were churches in different places. And they were so different in their spirit and their way of life. Their good works, their deeds, and they overran the world with God. So we always think our good life and good deeds are too small to make a difference. But with God, it only takes 11. 11 imperfect people, 11 ordinary people trying to achieve an extraordinary dream. So, you know, the challenge I want to ask all of you here today is, will you be the 11? Will you participate and be the 11 that helped build an extraordinary, unconventional, unmainstream communion here at The Evolution? And together with God, shine a new light into the world. Because number four, listen, Christianity is a verb and not a noun. So there's a little bit that we left out in our Lectio earlier, but I want to include it now, and it's Matthew 5, verse 13. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It is good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things that you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. You see, I find nowadays so many Christians spend their lives being a noun instead of a verb. And that is why they are never light. They never change anything. They never influence anything. They, you know, they are the light that people shine their light on. They are the people that light shines on. They are the people God and the disciples go to help, but they never truly or consistently help others themselves. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is a verb. Love is a verb. Goodness is a verb. Kindness and generosity is a verb. Jesus lived as a minister, not as a noun. He was salt. He could be tasted. He could be felt. Wherever his presence went, his person went, he created change and transformation. I mean, have you never noticed this thing about salt? You can't determine when salt is salty. If you accidentally put it in stuff in your coffee, you're going to taste it. 
You know, where he was, he was light. If there was darkness, he brought hope. Where there were people around him, his light made them light as well. So, you know, Tu Yue shared this really powerful insight in our breakout room as well. Now, she did Visio Divina on a different picture. But she spoke about light with regards to this other picture because in, in her picture, she, she saw how Jesus was the brightest light in the painting. And that that light from Jesus began to cast itself on the other characters in the painting. And the closer they were to, to, to him, the brighter the light on that side of their face. And her insight made me look at this picture, the artwork of communion differently. Because to me, that's what's happening here at this communion. Jesus is the brightest light in the room. And where the light is, it doesn't matter what stage we are at in life, what circumstances are going on, His light starts to make us light. And that's who He calls us to be in this world. Light that brings others into the light. Light that causes others to become light as well. So I want to say two things to you, the evolution. All of you here are called to be salt and light. You are called to be a verb, not a superficial noun. You are called to be like Jesus in this community and in the world around you. So don't ever live your life like a useless noun. That is only worth being trampled under. Live like you are light in the world. And to the leaders in core here who have been, especially those of you that you've been struggling with self-doubt about whether you're supposed to be leading in this church. You've been struggling with uncertainty, disappointment. And here's the thing, that's what purpose does sometimes. You demonic happiness is tough. It brings with it elevated moments of purpose and joy and fun and excitement and satisfaction like you feel, but it also comes with lows, with heartbreak, with pain, with frustration, with battle wounds. But friends, be brave. Because every great endeavor starts small. Every great endeavor is averaged for a painfully long time. It fails a lot, makes mistakes a lot, struggles a lot, changes a lot. There is nothing wrong with your change. In fact, if you're not changing, you're not growing. That's the problem with Christians nowadays. Nobody's changing. So nobody's growing. But I think you know, like I know, for a lot of you here, the leaders in court, we're in too deep. With God. This thing that we're creating is not our preference, it's our conviction. And this conviction is going to buck against the trend. It is going to invite criticism when you do something new. It will sometimes contain within itself abandonment, betrayal. But this idea that we're looking for that Jesus is love and goodness and integrity and faithfulness and good humanity. This simple, in fact, it's such a ridiculously simple idea. I can't believe it's radical. The simplicity of love God and love thy neighbor 
on this hang the entire Bible. It is our conviction, not our preference. So I want to say to you, be brave. It's time to stop hiding. It's time to stop letting self-doubt immobilize you. It's time to start leading. It is time to take your imperfect self to God's table and to be part of a revolution. People might call you a rebel, but really, you're a revolution. You see, let me read to you the words again, Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. We don't hide light. You see, do you know that even for a time, Jesus himself sometimes tried to hide his light? You know, occasionally he would heal people and he would tell them, tell no one. Now, I don't know why this occurs in the Bible, but I theorize that maybe sometimes, you know, I don't know, the attention exhausted him. Maybe he wanted to see if he could preach goodness without incurring the wrath of the religious leaders. Maybe there were days he got tired of disciples leaving and for a moment when let's try not to be so provocative and controversial. Even though on hindsight when we read, we know that there was nothing provocative about Jesus. He was simply being loving. But just by being himself, no matter how he tried to hide it, Jesus was a revolution. And people call him a rebel. So maybe, just maybe, sometimes Jesus, like us, tried to be a little bit more palatable. But maybe he also experienced that no matter what he did, he couldn't hide his light because he is, he's not trying to be light. And I suppose that's why in the end, at least right now, that's how I want to theorize that it was. That is why Christ went, screw it. Friends, be a city on a hill <laughs> that cannot be hidden. If you are light, stop hiding your light. Put it on a lampstand. You know, maybe Jesus thought to himself, if we're going to turn this bunch into light, let's just make sure all of Jerusalem and all the visiting Jews can see and hear them when they speak in tongues and heal the sick and take care of the poor. Let your light shine before people so that they can see your good and praise your Father who is in heaven. We don't hide light. So come on, will someone say with me, we don't hide light? Can you say it one more time with conviction? We don't hide light. We don't hide light. Say we. we. Say don't. don't. Say hide. hide. Say light. Hide. And if you believe that, come on, let's give Jesus a big hand. So when you look at the picture again, and will you say some confessions with me as you lock that image in? We put one hand on your heart and just say with me right now. 
My perfection is not required. Light is sharing both the ordinary and the extraordinary. So we've got, it only takes 11. And when you say this with conviction, just say, my Christianity is a verb and not a noun. We say, I am not a verb. Uh, I am a verb and not a noun. And will you also pray this after me? Why don't you close your eyes and let's just pray this over the evolution. Let's say our perfection is not required. Our light is sharing both the ordinary and the extraordinary. With God, it only takes 11 of us. Our Christianity at the evolution is a verb and not a noun. Are we save me? We are a verb and not a noun. We will not hide our light.